invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 126. Uh, if you're just joining us today, uh, we've been walking through the Psalms, praying with God's people. The book of Psalms is a book of uh, prayers, a prayer book for God's people through the centuries. And so we've been walking through, not looking at all 150, but uh, a selection of them. This morning we'll be looking at Psalm 126. And uh, we're going to be talking about joy this morning. Makes you feel a little uncomfortable. Just kidding. We're not talking about Joy Siebert. We're talking about joy. And uh, I don't know how many of you have been paying uh, attention to the Olympics. The 2020 Olympics just concluded this morning. I believe it's over. Uh, they had the closing ceremonies early this morning, our time. And uh, postponed by a year, but finally it happened and now has concluded. And I don't know about each of you, whether you've been watching closely, paying attention to what's going on. I, I didn't. I didn't even know exactly when they started, but I am alive and I heard little bits on the radio and then my family uh, was, was watching and so I heard some updates from them and occasionally sat down and probably watched what was replays of earlier events a few times. But finally this Friday, just a few days before it concluded, I, I sat down uh, in the morning to watch the end of the, the women's soccer game, the gold medal match. I don't know if any of you did that, but before I left for the office, uh, I saw on my phone when I checked TSN that they were in extra time. Uh, I'm not a big soccer fan, and so extra time seems weird to me, but I guess they had played the whole game, and then they were in this nebulous, ambiguous time of extra time. And so I went and sat down in front of the TV. The game was 1-1. And when I turned it on, Sweden seemed to be swarming. Uh, Team Sweden had a few near misses on Canada's net. Canada, it seemed like, didn't get the ball across center. But uh, the, the extra time came to an end. And then they, the game was still 1-1. And so it proceeded to penalty kicks. Each team gets five. And that started well for Team Canada. Uh, they got ahead early, but then they missed three in a row, and they were behind, if I'm recalling the, this correctly. Canada came to their fifth shot. They had to score to tie it, and Sweden had to miss to prolong things into sudden death. And indeed, that happened. Canada scored, Sweden didn't, and it moved to extra sudden death kicks. So Team Sweden went first in... Uh, Canada's netminder, Stephanie LeBay, made a diving stop. And then a 20-year-old from Vancouver, Julia Grasso, came to the line. She had the ball. She took a breath. She struck the ball. And despite the fact that the, the netminder for Sweden got a hand on it, the ball hit the back of the net, and Canada won gold. And in that moment, just to see the team erupt, Megan Johnson in her article about the match describes that, that next moment this, just with these words, the players erupted in pure joy. They'd won Olympic gold. They, they, had, they were Olympic champions, and this was not expected. Canada was uh, not favored. They were ranked eighth in the world. Uh, the Canadian women's soccer program had never before won uh, this was their first ever gold medal. And, and there's something special, if any of you shared that experience with me and many others across Canada, there's something special about watching that, that moment unfold. There's a sense of pride as a Canadian, but more than that, just to see the joy on the faces of those young women, to see them run together and just mob one another, to see the, the joy on the face of team captain Christine Sinclair, who has 
played in the Olympics since as far as I can remember, finally to get a gold medal. It was a delight to witness that moment live, the, the pure joy of these women celebrating this great accomplishment. Uh, the psalm we're exploring this morning uh, is about joy, about the desire, the longing for joy. Uh, in, in fact, the psalm, in this psalm, we are taught to pray, uh, to pray for joy, to pray along with the psalmist, to pray along with the people of God through the centuries for joy, true joy. And we will see as we make our way through this psalm, as we walk through uh, this message, that God is for our joy, that God is for your joy. Now, before we turn to a text, a few preliminary words. Uh, like the psalm we looked at last week, this psalm, Psalm 120, is part of a small collection of psalms within the larger book of psalms. It's part of a collection of 15 psalms. They're called the Songs of Ascent. Psalm 120 to 134 form this special collection. They were songs, psalms that God's people sang together as they made their way to Jerusalem uh, three times a year to celebrate the three major festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. It was this journey to the place of God's presence, the temple, the place where God dwelled. And last Sunday, we looked at the first of those songs of ascent, Psalm 120, which introduced this collection within the Psalter, highlighting for us that we, as followers of Christ, live in a hostile territory, that we live in a world full of lies and full of violence, and that we are beckoned, we are encouraged onto the, the way, the, the pilgrimage to God. We live as exiles in this world, disciples following after Jesus. Uh, remember, the Psalms as a whole is a book of prayers, uh, many of them sung and prayed by God's people. And in coming to this book, in coming to this Psalm, again, we are invited to learn how to pray, and in this case, to pray for joy. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This morning, there are four points or four things that we want to think about. Three of them arise directly from our text. The first one is an important uh, precursor to that. And, and so they are this. We, we're going to... Think things through under these four headings, desiring joy, remembering joy, expecting joy, and waiting for joy. Desiring joy, remembering joy, expecting joy, and waiting for joy. So first, this precursor to the things that arise directly from our text is this idea of desiring joy. I want each of you to take a moment and think, remember. I, I want you to think and remember of an experience, maybe, maybe more than one will come to your mind, but of an experience in your life where you experienced joy. Think of a moment where you were just overwhelmed with incredible joy, uh, indescribable joy. You were delirious with joy. A time when you, you laughed and you smiled till the muscles in your cheeks hurt. You've had that moment? 
where your face actually hurts from smiling. You're just giddy with happiness. It would be wonderful for us to take the time to hear those stories. I'm, I'm curious what events, what experiences come to your mind as I ask that question. Are not those moments incredibly sweet? How wonderful would it be if we could hit rewind and go back and relive those moments of just pure joy, where we laughed till our bellies hurt, we smiled till our cheeks hurt, and we just had this sense, this glow of joy. We all, this is true for every one of us, we all love the experience of joy. We all want to experience joy. And I want to say to you today, I want this to be very clear, that to be human is to desire joy. It's part of who God has made us, to, to desire joy. Uh, 17th century mathematician Blaise Pascal said this, all men seek happiness. That's all people. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ... They all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. He says that this desire for joy is in all of us. It is part of what it means to be human. Now sometimes as human beings, sometimes as Christians, we think wrongly about this. We think somehow that there's something wrong if we seek our own happiness, our own joy. John Piper shares in his book, Desiring God, he shares about an experience when he was in college. He would often have this sense that if he did some good deed with the motive of, uh, of his own happiness, that somehow he was ruining the goodness of that good thing that he did. That somehow he had to not have the motive of his own joy in doing a good thing, because otherwise you were making that good thing less good. You were using it selfishly. Uh, C.S. Lewis speaks directly to this notion in, in his most famous sermon entitled The Weight of Glory. If, if I were to ask you what's the highest virtue, if you were to ask people that, many people in the church today would say unselfishness. And, and Here's what C.S. Lewis said. This is a longer quote, but I think it's worth hearing, so please listen as I read. He wrote, he said, The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. You catch that? We can make unselfishness the goal rather than the good of others. He, he carries on. The New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we might follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, 
If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And this part of his quote you've probably heard. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant for the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. His point is that, that, that God wants us to desire joy, that we were created to desire joy. The problem is not that we want joy. The, the problem is that we seek to find joy in, in ways that will inevitably leave us unsatisfied. We will seek joy in fleeting things and things that will leave us disappointed and wanting. One of the ways that our culture, one of the ways that, that we too are impacted or, or seek joy is through entertainment. And Eugene Peterson uh, responds to this very well. He says, we try to get joy through entertainment. We pay someone to make jokes, tell stories, perform dramatic actions, sing songs. We buy the vitality of another's imagination to divert and enliven our own poor lives. The enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. That's a powerful commentary, is it not? Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert it after an overindulgent meal. But that kind of joy never permeates our lives, never changes our basic constitution. The effects are extremely temporary. A few minutes a few hours, a few days at most. We were created by God for joy. God is for our joy. It's not that we seek joy that somehow is a problem. It's that we seek joy in the wrong things. See, our world, the Bible tells us, is, is broken. It has fallen. We are sinful, rebellious creatures. We have turned from the God for whom, by whom we were made to know Him, to love Him, and to find our joy in Him. We have turned from the Creator to the created things. We have made good things into ultimate things. We've looked for joy in things that can never satisfy us, in things that can never fill us with that joy. That is our problem. I want us to turn now from that precursor, that explanation of who we are and our God-given desire for joy to uh, what our psalm shows us as we begin, that is, remembering joy. Uh, our psalm begins by pointing backwards, uh, by pointing into the past. It concerns history, what happened before. Uh, it, it is likely that the psalmist here is referring to one specific event, or that one specific event informs this song, and that is the return of God's people from exile. In 586, uh, Judah, uh, God's people, went into exile because of their sin, their idolatry. They were taken uh, by Babylon, invaded and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, carried them off into exile. Uh, their homeland ruined the temple, the place of God's presence in their midst gone, and they found themselves in a foreign land living as exiles for decades. Decade after decade after decade after decades, seven decades in a foreign land, far from the land of God, from Jerusalem, the place of God's presence. 
And then suddenly it was over. Suddenly they were on their way home. It, it, it seemed too good to be true, is what the psalmist says to us. It seemed like they were dreaming. Listen, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. This, it's too good to be true. Like, pinch me, pinch me, please. After decade, after decade, after decade living as exiles in a foreign land, suddenly they're back home. They're back in the promised land. They're back in Jerusalem. They're back in the place where God dwells. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, and he's not speaking, the psalmist isn't speaking only of that capital city, but of the nation as a whole, the place of the temple, but it means more that the nation, they as a people have been released. They were freed to return to the land, to rebuild. After 70 long years of exile, the nation was experiencing restoration. And it was so good that they could barely believe that it was true. Please pinch me. That didn't fit in the psalm, but that, that's in there. They are delirious with joy, with delight. Listen again. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. I mean, can you sense their overwhelming delight? What a marvelous way to describe joy. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues filled with songs of joy. Just this, this picture of, of an explosion of joy. An overflow of sheer delight. That, that's how the psalmist begins this song. Remember when. Remember our joy. Remember our delight. Remember when the Lord acted and restored our fortunes. I suspect that scholars who conclude that the psalmist is thinking specifically of the return from exile, I, I, I suspect they're right, but it's really not necessary for us to, to confirm that detail because ultimately this psalm is not just about one moment in time. It, it, it is, it's reminding us of how God has acted through history. Read through the biblical account and you will see time after time after time God acting to bring restoration, God acting to bring redemption, God acting to bring joy. Think of Abram and Sarah, old, Sarah barren, no children, no offspring, and now she's well, well past the age of bearing children. And yet God had made this promise that one day they would have descendants. And, and then old Sarah and older Abram, suddenly, Sarah's pregnant. Suddenly, God has acted. He has done the impossible. He has acted, and, and they are filled with joy. They, they name their son Laughter. God's people, 400, more than 400 years, enslaved in Egypt. Not only decade after decade, but century after century after century. Cruelly oppressed under, under taskmasters, making bricks, making bricks, making bricks, day after day, making bricks without straw. And then suddenly they find themselves running up the far slope of the Red Sea, praising God for his acts of deliverance, filled with joy that explodes. David in the wilderness, 
running for his life from King Saul, hiding in caves. And then suddenly, Saul is removed and he, David, is crowned king. Over and over and over and over again in Scripture, we see God step into dark situations and act and bring joy. It's what God does. And the psalmist here says, remember when. Remember when the Lord restored our fortunes. In this case, this act of God is not only recognized by God's people, but even by the nations. Our psalm says in verse 2, Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Everyone looking around goes, the Lord has done this. The Lord has done great things. And, and Israel with them says, yes, the Lord has done great things for us. And we were filled with joy. For every one of us here, whether you're here physically or online, for every one of us who has in Christ, that is, we have repented of our sin, we've turned from our sin and put our faith in Jesus, we have declared to Jesus, you are my only hope. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need to be clothed with your perfect righteousness that if I am judged on the basis of my own performance for you, God, I am without hope. You alone are my hope, Jesus. We've repented and believed the gospel. Then we all have a story to remember as well. Remember when... God, remember when you brought me to that place of seeing the darkness of my sin. Remember when I felt so completely hopeless. Remember when I stood uh, under your coming judgment. Lord, remember that and you opened my eyes to see your love. You opened my eyes to see your amazing grace. You opened my eyes to see the glory of what you accomplished on the cross, Jesus, when you suffered the punishment that I deserved so that through faith in you I would be declared holy, clothed with your perfection, adopted as your daughter, as your son, made new, welcomed into your people, into your family, as a son, as a daughter. Remember when you restored my fortune. Remember when God saved you. We all who are in Christ have that story. The psalmist here begins by leading us to remember joy. To remember how God has moved. To remember how God has acted in our own lives and in our life as a community. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it when he says, joy has a history. Joy has a history. Point three, longing for joy. Desiring joy. Remembering joy, longing for joy. This psalm that is so characterized by joy in these opening verses shifts dramatically at the halfway point. You probably noticed that as I read. The first three verses of the psalm have us thinking that this psalm is a psalm of praise, a psalm of thanksgiving as we reflect on God's great salvific act in restoring His people to their homeland. But verse 4 and following jar us into a different realization that this is not a psalm of praise. This is, this is actually a psalm of lament. The psalmist remembers joy, but he is not currently experiencing joy. Did you notice that? 
Verse 4 captures his longing. It's a prayer, a desperate cry to the Lord. Restore our fortunes, Lord. He remembers when God did that in the past, but he's praying now, Lord, restore our fortunes. He, he cries out from a place of darkness. What a stark contrast. Once there was joy, once there was restoration, but not anymore. Now joy is but a memory. Now there is barrenness. Now there are tears. Now there is this distinct absence of joy. And so the psalmist prays. He, he leads God's people to pray. He leads us to pray. Restore our fortunes, Lord. Verse 4 concludes like streams in the Negev. The Negev was a desert. It was dry, barren, parched, hot. That's how life feels for the psalmist right now as he prays this. Life is barren. It's filled with tears. And he longs for joy. He longs for God to act. He longs for God to do in the present what he's done in the past, that he would show up, that he would bring joy. The Negev was a desert, almost always dry, hot, parched, starved of water. And in the Negev, there were these gullies, these dry, what looked like riverbeds, but with no water. But every once in a while, every once in a while, the rains would come and it would flow from the highland and it would form streams and it would flood the Negev and fill in those what are called wadis. And the Negev suddenly would become this place filled with sparkling, refreshing water. That's what he's praying for. God, restore our fortunes like the Negev, like streams in the Negev. God, my life is dry. I'm parched. I'm hot. I'm weeping. Life is painful. I feel no joy. Lord, please act. Restore our fortunes. I need, I need the rain to come. I need streams to flow and, and flood the Negev because my life feels dry and barren. And It's so clear from this psalm that the psalmist knew dark times. The psalmist knew disappointment. He knew sorrow. He knew tears. And he longs for joy. Joy that is currently absent from his life. And so he prays. He pours out his longing. Restore our fortunes, Lord. Like streams in the Negev. And that leads us to the fourth point that is expecting joy. Desiring joy, remembering joy, longing for, longing for joy and expecting joy. Though the psalmist is in the midst of sorrow, though joy is currently eluding him, yet he lives with the expectation of joy, joy to come. Listen to what he, he writes, what he declares in verses 5 and 6. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, Carrying seed to sow will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Despite his current pain, 
Despite his tears, his, his weeping, the psalmist declares that tears will be replaced with songs of joy. That those whose hearts are heavy and weighed down right now will one day be filled with laughter and, and abundance. How can he say that? On, on what basis does the psalmist declare this? Well, the answer to that question takes us full circle back to the beginning of the psalm. He remembers how God has acted in the past. And he knows that God's activity in the past was grounded in God's character, which is unchanging. So if in the past God acted to bring His people joy, will He not act again to bring His people joy once more? Eugene Peterson asserts, there is no reason to suppose that God will arbitrarily change His way of working with us. God is for our joy. God has worked over and over and over throughout the course of time to bring joy to His people. James Montgomery Boyce calls these last verses prophecy, a declaration of what will be. He writes this, in Psalm 126, the memory of those singing, laughter-filled days of the past becomes not nostalgia, but the ground of a strong hope for even better days to come. This is not just wishful, pie-in-the-sky Christianity. It is a strong, realistic Christianity because it is based on the character of God. God is for our joy. God is for your joy. And we know that God acted in the past to bring joy. God acted in the past to rescue, to redeem, to restore. And what God has done before, God will do again. And we see that most clearly when we look to Jesus, when we look to the cross, when we look to what God has done through Jesus. Jesus came, God put on flesh, and He came and He lived among us. And He took our place. He laid down His life for us. Sinners, rebels, those who've turned away from the Creator to created things, who have looked for happiness, who've looked for joy, who've looked for meaning and satisfaction in, in often good things, sometimes wicked things, but often in good things that we've made into ultimate things. We've looked away from the Creator to created things, and we've ignored God, we've rejected God, we've said, thank you, I'll be my own God, I'll live my own way. And God in love came in Jesus. And He suffered in my place, in your place. He, he bore the penalty for our rebellion. He suffered God's just wrath for my sin, for your sin. So that through faith, that is anyone who would put their hope in Him would be cleansed, would be washed, would be purified, would be declared holy. Not only that, but clothed with His perfection, clothed with His obedience. Do you realize that your life as a disciple, it's never about your performance for Jesus. It's about Jesus' performance for you. And that doesn't mean that obedience doesn't matter. It just means that obedience is already accomplished, and so you are now free to follow Jesus. The pressure's off. And what we discover as we walk with Jesus is that true joy is found in following Him. 
The true found joy is found in a relationship of intimacy with Him. That, that we were made by Him for Him. And so we see in Jesus that, that, that God has accomplished what we could never accomplish for ourselves. That God has, through Christ, redeemed us, restored us, brought into, us into relationship with Christ. That we are adopted and we have a sure future. That is what is being promised here. That is the declaration. Not that if we trust Jesus, we'll have our best life now. That life will all be bliss, roses, and sunshine. It's not. And I've seen too many people who have come to Christ shipwreck their faith because when trials come, when sadness comes, when pain comes, they go... God must not love me, or I'm not good enough. Or... Because there's this, this belief that somehow if we come to Christ, then, then we're going to have the life we want. But see, that's actually wrong-headed because are we coming to God because we want to get stuff from God? Or are we coming to God because we, we want God? Because it's, it's in God that we will experience joy. It, it's in intimacy with the One who loves us, who made us, that we will find joy. There's no promise in Scripture. If you read your Bible, there's no promise that put your faith in Jesus and everything in this life will go smoothly. No, not at all. But the Scriptures do promise. God promises us that though there will be sorrow, that though there will be pain, though there will be weeping and tears, that one day He will wipe away your tears. One day you will stand before Christ, your Redeemer, and He will put His hand to your cheek, and He will wipe away your tears. That's what we're promised. Eugene Peterson says, one of the most interesting and remarkable things Christians learn is that laughter does not exclude weeping. Christian joy is not an escape from sorrow. Pain and hardship still come, but they are unable to drive out the happiness of the redeemed. Because we know what God is like. We know that God is for our joy. And we know that no matter what tears we shed, no matter what pain we walk through, that God is for our joy and we can live expecting joy. There are two images here in these last verses. Two images for how joy comes. One, I've already talked about the, this image of the Negev where the rains come and suddenly the negative is flooded. Joy comes suddenly. And there are experiences in our life like that where in the midst of life's pain, suddenly, suddenly God acts and we are filled with joy. We experience that. But that, that's not the only image here. There's a second one. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow. I'm not a farmer. But I had the joy number of years ago with our late brother Abe, driving to Toefield, he showed me his farm. He would know this probably better than at least most of us. There's a lot of work involved in farming, and you sow seed at one point, and then you wait, and you wait, and you wait some more. We are women and men longing for joy. 
And what we see here is that we can expect joy, but, but we may have to wait. We may have to wait a long time for that joy, but it is coming. It is certain. It is without a doubt in our future. There will be moments in life where in the midst of sorrow and tears, God acts suddenly, and there will be seasons where we wait with tears running down our cheeks. But our joy is sure. One of the greatest misconceptions about God as revealed in Scripture is that God is some sort of cosmic killjoy, that He's watching to make sure no one has too much fun. And that's not a misconception only in the church, but outside of the church. I mean, that's, that's what all God's laws and commands are about, right? Make sure we don't do any of the fun stuff. That is one of the greatest lies, one of the greatest misconceptions, and a massive tragedy. God is for our joy. God is for your joy. Do you know, this story might freak you out. It's from the Bible, don't worry. God is most fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus showed up, and in John's Gospel, uh, there are seven stories of miracles. They're called signs. Signs pointing to who He is, what He's about. You know what Jesus' first sign is in John's Gospel? He turns water into wine. And just He turns a lot of water into a lot of wine after the wedding guests have already had too much to drink. That freaks us out. That is about God's abundance about God's heart for joy. It's not endorsing drunkenness, but it wasn't grape juice. It's, it's about abundance. It's about joy. God's desire for joy. God's desire for celebration. God is for our joy. He is for your joy and my joy. Phyllis McGinley writes, Dourness is not a sacred attribute. And she's right. Joy is. God is for joy. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. God's Spirit works in us and gives us joy. It produces joy in us. And He promises one day our joy will be complete. And in the meantime, we wait. We wait expectantly. We walk through experiences of great sadness. We walk through experiences that will bring tears to our eyes, that will leave us weeping. But it does not leave us there. God leads us to joy. God has promised joy. And so we join with the psalmist and pray, restore our fortunes, Lord. We learn to pray with the psalmist. We learn to pray in the midst of life, in the midst of life's pain, in the midst of life's sorrow, in the midst of tears. Lord, restore our fortunes. We fix our eyes on God, our Redeemer. We fix our eyes on the promises that one day God will wipe away every tear. The young women who won gold, marvelous accomplishment, a great moment, but their joy will fade. The joy of that moment will subside. They will return home 
life will continue. They will experience difficulties, challenges. They will suffer loss and pain. And that joy will fade. But there is a joy that we are promised that will never fade. It is a joy we wait for. We, we were made for joy, the joy of knowing, loving, living intimately with God. Uh, a joy that we will one day know in all fullness when Christ returns for us. And so I want to leave you with this. Though in this life we will, will face trials, though in this life we will experience sorrow, though in this life we will shed tears, in Jesus we can live with a confident expectation of joy. In Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, let us be women and men who fix our eyes on Jesus and who pray with the psalmist, who learn to pray with the psalmist, who, who learn to teach others to pray with the psalmist. Lord, restore our fortunes. We look to you for joy. We wait for you to bring to fulfillment and completion our joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know, even in these moments, many of us know great sorrow. Teach us to pray. Pray for joy. To look to you for joy. We thank you, we praise you, that you are for our joy. May we catch glimpses of that now. Fill us with a hope and expectation as we live as your people. Amen.